are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, this is David Guzik. Welcome to our YouTube Live question and answer session for today. Uh, it is May 23rd, 19 or 19, 2019. That's what I was thinking. Definitely. I didn't think we were in the last century, but I just remember this is 2019. I'm glad you could join me today. I'm here to talk about a few things, biblical issues and questions people have, and then get onto your live questions that you submit on the chat window here on the YouTube live stream. So I'm glad you could join me today and happy for those who tune in afterwards to watch them after the fact. Uh, I enjoy these times Thursday afternoons, especially when we can do them live. So let me jump right in to what we're talking about. I want to lead off with a question from Hector. And I, I want to lead off with this question. I thought it was a great question. Hector asked this question, Pastor David, can you help me reconcile John chapter three, verse 13 and Elijah being taken up to heaven? Well, let me begin by just saying that in second Kings, oh, what is it? Chapter four or five or so, we have the record of the prophet Elijah being carried up into heaven, uh, accompanied by a whirlwind, like a chariot of fire that accompanied him at the time. doesn't exactly say that he rode up in a chariot of fire, but that kind of accompanied. So it says there that uh, Elijah went to heaven from earth in this miraculous kind of way. Now, reconciling that with what Jesus said in John chapter 13, I'm going to read John chapter 13, uh, chapter 3, excuse me, verses 13 and 14. Here we go. John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, you see, is this a contradiction here? Because Jesus says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Say, well, is Jesus saying that nobody went to heaven before him or only he has ever been in heaven? I think this is just one of those situations where you got to take a look and take a look at the context. When you take a look at the whole context of John chapter three, it seems pretty clear what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is drawing attention to himself as the teacher from heaven. The whole context here in John chapter three, this dialogue that he has with Nicodemus is Jesus comparing himself to the other religious teachers of his day or of any day. And Jesus is the only teacher to have come down from heaven who ascended to heaven and who came down from heaven. I like the way that the New Living Translation brings out the meaning of this in verse, thir uh, verse 13 of John chapter three. Let me read this to you from the New Living Translation. It says this, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man who has come down from heaven. I think that's a great way to give the sense of this. So first of all, Jesus isn't saying that nobody has gone to heaven before him because Elijah went to heaven, uh, Enoch went to heaven, I don't know what you could say exactly about Moses. Moses' body was disputed. And uh, there were other people who say, so he's not trying to say he's the only one who's gone to heaven. But what we can say is this, is that Jesus is pointing out that there's a huge difference between him and every other teacher who's ever lived. We've never had a teacher on this earth who have come from heaven. All the prophets that have spoken were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The authors of scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
but they themselves were not the men from heaven that Jesus himself was. This is in the sort of rabbinical phrasing that Jesus is using here in John chapter three. By the way, it's very interesting that conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter three, it's filled with rabbinic allusions, rabbinic phrasing, rabbinic understanding. That's what Jesus was speaking about with the rabbi, Nicodemus. It was sort of a rabbi to rabbi conversation. And earlier in their conversation, Nicodemus had already said that he understood that Jesus was a teacher from God. That's in John chapter three, verse two. So Jesus is here now just connecting the dots for Nicodemus regarding his authority. Nicodemus, you say, I'm a man from God. I'm just not a man from God in the way that everybody else was a man from God. I am the man from heaven here to bring God's truth in a way that nobody has ever since or ever before or ever since. Okay, so that's the first question I want to deal with that just came in from social media. I think uh, Hector left that question on Instagram. Here's another question from Loretta. And Loretta asked this question. She says, I was hoping you could help me in reference to the four days. I've never read or heard that Jesus was examined for four days or that the Passover lamb was examined for four days. I'm not saying the site is incorrect, but I was wondering where exactly is this in scripture. Well, let me point that out for you, Loretta. I think it's sort of an interesting idea. And what the people are saying is about Jesus being examined for four days. It's um, connecting a few different thoughts in scripture. Now, the first thing I want to say is we're going to talk a little bit about the chronology here in the last week of Jesus's life. And I'm just here to tell you that there are chronological I don't challenges. There's now I, these chronological challenges don't bother me in the least. Uh, th there's many things that if a detailed analysis were to happen, anybody from the outside taking a look at our week, there might be some hard things for them to understand chronologically. And so when we trace the record, there's a, well, we don't know if it was this way or that way exactly. That doesn't bother me in the slightest. But let me just record it to you this way. In Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse three, it says this. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th day of the month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So here's where the idea of the four days of examination come in. And this is what it means, that according to the Passover command, the households of Israel were to bring the lamb into their household on the 10th. Then on the 14th, four days following the 10th, they were to kill the lamb. Now, it does not specifically say in the Exodus account that those four days were for, for examining the lamb. Um, it does say that the lamb had to be examined. It says in verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. So it had to be examined, but it does not specifically say that the four days between the 10th and the 14th were for examination. But the rabbis, other rabbinic, they sort of got this idea. Now, this is transferred 
over to the idea of Jesus because when Jesus came into Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion, he came into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan and was crucified on the 14th of that lunar month on the calendar of Israel. He came in on the 10th and was crucified on the 14th on Passover. So do you get the idea here? The idea is that Jesus is the Passover lamb coming into the household, so to speak, of Israel or Jerusalem on the 10th. He was examined, so to speak, by his interactions on the Temple Mountain throughout the city of Jerusalem by the religious leaders. And in this regard, he was rejected by the religious leaders, but utterly approved by God. And he became the Passover lamb that took away the sins of the world. As John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So if I could just get back to your question, the whole idea gets back, Loretta, to this idea of connecting it with Exodus chapter 12, verses three through six. Now, is this something that is specifically spelled out for us in the scriptures? No, not really. Uh, we're not specifically told that Jesus came in for the examination. Uh, we just kind of gather it from the text. We're not specifically told that the four days, uh, we're not told this in scripture, were for the um, examination of the lamb as detailed in Exodus chapter three. This is just things that people gather and people look and say, hey, wow, isn't that a neat illustration of what actually happened and was fulfilled in the life of Jesus? There's all sorts of these marvelous illustrations and ideas and pointing towards the person and work of Jesus Christ that we see throughout the scriptures that uh, we look at, we enjoy, they inspire us, they teach us, but some of them aren't necessarily specifically spelled out in the scriptures. I hope that's helpful for you, Loretta. All right, now I'm going to get to some of the questions and comments brought into the live chat. Thank you for everybody who's uh, tuned on. Uh, Isaac says, hello. Hi, Isaac. Hi, back to you. Joanne says, want to live another hundred years just to study God's word. Now, that's true, Joanne. I would want to live another hundred years just to study God's word myself. But I will tell you this. Don't you think that even in heaven, even in eternity, we're going to be studying God's word? Don't you think that there's going to be more things for us to learn about the nature and the person and the wonder of who God is and all he's done for us, even in heaven? I think that's going to be part of what makes heaven heaven. Okay, going on. Carol, David, we're studying in Revelation. Your commentary states that 70% of the verses relate to the Old Testament. Isn't this also true of most the New Testament books? All right, let me read Carol's question one more time. David, we are studying Revelation. Your commentary states that 70% of the verses relate to the Old Testament. Isn't this also true of most of the New Testament books? Now, Carol, that's a very good question. And I would say it is true of most the New Testament, but not in the same proportion. And I'm just going to throw out some figures off the top of my head. You know, I'm just doing a very, you know, rough calculation. But let's say that if you were to take the entire New Testament, maybe 40 or 50% of the verses would make some kind of quotation or allusion back to the Old Testament. And again, I don't know what the exact percentage is. But what's interesting about the book of Revelation is that it is more true of the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book. There is no book of the New Testament that is more linked to the Old Testament by its specific quotations and many allusions to the Old Testament as the book of Revelation. That's why I think that a key for understanding the book of Revelation is understanding the Old Testament. Now, you would do better 
to understand the Old Testament, if you want to know about the book of Revelation, more than you would to know the modern economic, political, spiritual situation in the world. Now, again, I, I think those things are valuable. Understanding the current situation today is helpful for understanding the book of Revelation, but the real key is understanding more about the Old Testament. So, Carol, I think it's just a matter of proportion. All of the New Testament is connected in some way back to the Old Testament, but you'll just find a greater proportion of those verses and allusions in the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book. Thanks for the question, Carol. Next up, Isaac says, is the line between preaching and teaching a fine line or do the two lap over a lot? Do you believe that there are some churches who focus too much on just one? Where is the balance? Okay. Uh, different people, Isaac, have different ideas on this question. And basically what you're asking is, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And uh, is there a, um, is it an important difference? Is it a, a fast difference? Okay. The way most people explain it, and I would go along with this for the most part, the way most people explain it, the dominant difference between teaching and preaching is this. Preaching is for the purpose of persuasion, decision, persuasion. Teaching is for the idea of education, information. Now, can you do both at the same time? Yes. Oftentimes, will there be more of an emphasis on one or the other? Yes. But I think that's just kind of the difference between the two. Preaching has more of a focus on persuasion, and a, a, a direction towards a decision. Teaching is more informational. Uh, it's more instructive in its nature. There can be considerable overlap over the, over the two. Uh, there can be um, a greater division among some people. I think both of them are essential for a healthy Christian life. I think that most preachers or teachers, if you want to use either phrase, they tend to be more of one or the other, but both are important and have their place in the Christian life. So I hope that's helpful for you, Isaac. Uh, Joanne says this, Pastor David, I'm hearing much about teaching the Bible in public schools. What are your thoughts of this? I know mine. Uh, you say bad idea. Well, okay. This is a difficult issue, Joanne, and I'll tell you why it's difficult. It's difficult just for the idea. And again, your question is, I'll repeat it just for the sake of our viewers and listeners. I'm hearing much about teaching the Bible in public schools. What are your thoughts on this? I am grateful whenever the schools open up uh, the opportunity for there to be some Christian influence in the public square, in the public schools. However, there is a danger in this. Because if you open up the schools for Christian influence, then many people will say that you should also open it up for whatever other spiritual influence. Now, let me put it to you this way. Would people like a Bible study to be led in a school, you know, during school hours? And may say, yes, yes, I'd like that. If it was to be led by Jehovah's Witnesses. You say, whoa, no, wait, wait a minute here. You see the kind of the conundrum here that we have. It's not just uh, will there be allowed to be Bible teaching in school, but who in fact is going to be doing the teaching. So um, I'm grateful for there, there's a ministry that we're connected with here in Santa Barbara called Child Evangelism Fellowship, and they have Bible clubs 
in schools all over the place. And I think these are wonderful things. They're not done during school hours. They're voluntary. Uh, the children aren't compelled to be there, but I think they're a great, wonderful, um, both teaching and preaching, both instructing and evangelizing there uh, in the proper setting, volunteer basis on the kids. Nobody's compelled to be there, but I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that they do that. However, we just got to realize that the most important place, the most strategic place for young people, for children to be instructed is in their home. Parents, Christian parents, can't think that the schools or the Sunday school is going to do their job for them. Um, and as far as Christian influence, we should take the advantage of taking whatever we can in the society to bring Christian influence in the public sphere. Uh, however, we got to realize that there can be a downside to it. Uh, and especially what we're not advocating is for a government control over what is taught in churches or an officially approved doctrine from the government. Uh, we don't need that. Okay, uh, Ian says, let me get back to Ian's question here. Finally finished Standing in Grace, very helpful and encouraging. Thank you for your work there. Well, Ian, I'm very happy about that. I'm taking a look over here is a copy of that book that Ian spoke about, Standing in Grace. It's a book on grace that kind of has a little bit of a story behind it in my life. But um, some people find it helpful. Uh, basically, what it does talks about the New Testament uh, teaching on grace and applying it to our life today. So you can get that book if you want. Uh, William says, thank you for that, Ian. William says, good afternoon, Pastor Guzik. Good to see you again this week. Always a great blessing. What are your thoughts on generational curses? Speaks of being God punishing for the sins of the father, not cursing. Um, and then you're quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse five. You shall not bow down to them worship for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, uh, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those. Now, again, I, I'm going to pause you right there. William, I don't think you did this intentionally, but you cut the verse off there. Out of, oh, no, you continue it just right there. Of those who hate me, then you have the scripture saying that children will not share in the guilt of the parents' sins. Please notice this. I think that the Exodus passage is very clear that um, God would only assign judgment upon a continuing generation if they share in the same sins that the previous generation. God judges a man or a woman for themselves. He does not judge them for the sins of their fathers, of their ancestors nor does he judge them for the sins of their children. That's the whole point of the Ezekiel 18 passage, William, that you quote down there below. And I think it's an excellent quotation there that you're saying that God holds the individual soul accountable for its sins, not regarding to it the sins of the ancestors nor the sins of the descendants. Now, we do understand that sin can have an effect from one generation to another. And in that sense, there can be a generational effect. If a person is a godless person, if a person is mired in addiction, if a person is mired in the ill effects of their sin and the destructive nature of sin in their life, that is gonna have an effect not only upon them as an individual, but upon their family and upon succeeding generations. And, and so we understand, Sin has an effect 
has a damage that can go on from generations. But God does not judge a person for their ancestor's sin or for the descendant's sin. That person stands before God alone. And again, I would just instruct you back to those critical words in the, gen in the Exodus 20 passage that you quoted, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. In other words, if those subsequent generations persist in their hatred and rejection of God, then God's judgment will be upon them as well. So it's a good question, William. I think we would just want to get back to that principle that our sin may have an effect on succeeding generations and often does, but God judges each individual soul individually. All right. Agnes asks, can some teachers teach heresy, but still go to heaven if they don't know what they're teaching is wrong? Agnes, that is a great question. I'll repeat it again. And I got to say, it's a question that maybe I've never considered before. Here's the question again. Can some teachers teach heresy, but still go to heaven if they don't know what they're teaching is wrong? Well, let me just say, I want to, again, redefine not as if I'm making up a definition, but just something I've done before. I want to define once again what heresy is because I think all too often in the Christian world today, people confuse error with heresy. Something can be wrong and not be heretical. Heresy is this. Heresy is that which, if it is believed and held to consistently and persistently, it will lead that person to hell. If you believe this consistently and persistently, you will go to hell. And those who teach such things consistently and persistently will also go to hell because we would take it that they teach what they believe. Now, your question is, will they still go to heaven if they don't know what they're teaching is wrong? And Agnes, according to the definition of heresy that I just gave you, I don't see how those people can go to heaven because they would believe what they are teaching. And if what a person believes, if they believe it consistently and persistently, if that will lead them to hell, then those who teach those things, believing it themselves, they also will not enjoy eternal life in heaven. So we understand there can be many well-intentioned teachers of error, perhaps, who will go to heaven, but not teachers of heresy. Heresy, assuming they believe it themselves, which I think is a fair assumption. Remember what heresy is. It is that which, if you believe it consistently and persistently, you'll go to hell from it. By that very definition, I would have to answer no to your question, Agnes. Uh, teachers who teach heresy will still go to will not go to heaven, um, even if they're ignorant about the wrongness of their teaching. Good question, there, Agnes. Okay, redemption in Christ says. I've often heard it said that Christianity isn't a relation, a religion, but a relationship with Christ. But in James chapter one, verses twenty six and twenty seven, James commends a pure and undefiled religion. So, is Christianity a religion? Well, redemption Christ, you ask a great question. A question that it seems to me we've dealt with before, but I don't mind dealing with it again. Let me just categorically say, yes, Christianity is a religion. Now, what you got to understand 
is we as preachers and teachers, we often speak in shorthand. We, we often try to get across a principle. And when we are trying to get across a principle, we may not speak with exact theological correctness. I suppose ideally every one of us preachers and teachers would speak with theological correctness all the time in every way. But sometimes in order to make a point, sometimes we speak a way where the principle is true, but it's not exactly theologically correct. Let me explain to you what people mean when they say Christianity isn't a religion. What they actually mean by that is Christianity is not only a religion. It's not merely a religion. And by religion, they're talking about customs, traditions, a way of life, you know, sort of a system of worship. Now, Christianity does have its customs. Christianity does have its legitimate traditions. Christianity does have its uh, uh, worship practices and all that. And all those are factors of religion. But what we're trying to say is Christianity is not only those things. It is also and even predominantly a real relationship with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we say it's not a religion, it's a relationship, that's not exactly theologically correct, but we understand what people mean when they say that. What they mean is it's not only a religion. It's not merely a religion. It is a true relationship. Because look, let's face it. It is possible to have religion without relationship. And religion without relationship isn't going to save anybody. Nobody gets to heaven by religion without relationship. And so really, that's just what's trying to get at when we speak in those terms. Thanks for the question there. Um, William, great for your questions. Thanks. Um, no, you're not being too long-winded. I just hope that I got to your question there. Thanks. Lucia says, hi, David. This is my question. If Satan fell between the creation of angels and deceiving eves, how was he meeting with God and the rest of the angels in Job chapter one? Can he go to heaven when he pleases? <laughs> Lucy, it's very interesting about your question here. And again, your question is, okay, if Satan fell between the creation of angels and deceiving Eve, how can he meet with God in heaven in Job chapter one? How can he be, as the Bible says, the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. There are passages of scripture that lead us to believe that right now Satan has some kind of access to heaven. All right, Lucy, it's a great question. Um, I would say and answer it like this, that Satan does have access to heaven, both from the Job passage, both from the passage where it talks about being the accuser of the brethren, accusing us before God day and night. There are indications that Satan has access to God, or at least to God's presence in some way, in heaven. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought that God could allow no evil in his presence. Do you remember what I was saying before about sometimes as preachers and teachers talking in theological shorthand that isn't exactly theologically correct? Well, that's another example right there. Satan can appear in God's presence. We see it happening in the scripture several times. Now, there will come a day when God casts all evil out of his presence. Absolutely so. And we as human beings, we have to have that perfecting work of Jesus Christ in our lives before we can go to God in heaven. But to say that God cannot bear to have anything unholy or sinful in his presence is not exactly theologically true. The principle is true that we need to, need to be made right by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf before we can get to heaven. That principle is true. 
but the way that it is stated is sometimes not entirely theologically correct. Okay, now back to the simple idea. We need to understand that uh, there are several falls of Satan and the fall of Satan that casts him out of heaven, I believe has not happened yet. There's still a lot to that. Uh, that's much bigger question than I'm going to get into right now. But I'll just say this, that I don't believe that the fall of Satan, where he is cast out of heaven, has happened yet in God's redemptive plan of the ages. You can look up my commentary on EnduringWord.com to the relevant passages if you want to know more about that. Okay, next question. And uh, we're going to kind of come in for a landing a little bit here. Uh, getting close to the half hour point. And I don't mind if we go a little bit over, but some other things I got to get to today. So here we go. Uh, Bianca says, hello from Denmark. I have a question about prayer. Is it okay to pray in another language when the one I'm, than the one I'm born with? I love praying in English. I feel I can express myself better to God this way. Bianca, there is nothing wrong with praying to God in whatever language you can speak that uh, is most comfortable for you and is most what sometimes people call your heart language. No problem with that at all. Um, so don't feel hindered in that whatsoever. And we're not even talking about the whole issue of praying or speaking in tongues and this. That's not the issue that you're asking about right here. Let me just say that if you are bilingual or trilingual or know several languages, you should feel entirely free to pray to God in the heart language of your choice. There's no hindrance to that at all. Thanks for the question, Bianca. Uh, Ian says, I've heard some say that the local church, as they gather should be more concerned about feeding the flock and not so much on teaching for the sake of unbelievers that may show up. Thoughts? Okay, Ian, you're asking if the work of the local church should be more based on feeding the believers who come or evangelistic in nature. And here's my basic answer. Answer is yes, I think we can do both. Now, let me say, I think that it's appropriate to have the focus on the building up of the saints, the maturity of the body of Christ, as is pointed out in Ephesians chapter four, verses 10 through what is it, 14 or 15, whatever it is. He uh, Did I say Hebrews? I meant Ephesians chapter four, verses 10 through about verse 14 or 15. Ephesians four, that pattern of ministry, God giving gifted offices to the church for the edification, the building up the saints, for the maturing of the saints, for the work of the ministry. I think that's the main focus. When we come together as Christians, number one, we focus on the worship and the honoring of God. Secondly, on the building up of his people, their, their uh, blessing, their feeding, their edification. Then we also remember that we do the work of an evangelist. I think all three of those can be practiced, but I would put them in those orders. The worship of God, the edification, the building up of the saints, and doing the work of an evangelist. I think all those three things can operate concurrently. I'm really not into church services, regular Sunday worship services, we call them, that are focused fundamentally as evangelistic crusades. I think that there's a place for the evangelistic service, the service, the, the you know sort of thing that is focused primarily on image. There's a place for that in the life of a church, especially as it reaches out to the community. But the week in, week out worship service, I believe should have that priority. The worship of God, the building up of God's people, and then doing the work of the evangelist. Thanks for that, Ian. 
Carol says, I personally see the Old Testament as an essential stepping stone to understanding the New Testament. Amen to that, Carol. Uh, Menashe, do you think people can lose their salvation? Okay, Menashe, that is a great question. I think we're going to have to leave that one for another time. Uh, I see the clock. It is a great question. Ask it again early on in one of our Q&A answer sessions. We'll get to it. Um, say, having difficulties downloading the audio from the Gospel of John from the Enduring Word website. We'll take a look at it. I hope we can get those things fixed. And then um, let me uh, conclude with just these two last questions, both from Neely and from Janos. Good to see you, Janos. Neely says, hi, Pastor. What would you say to a Christian who stumbles into fornication with an unbeliever, then feels so guilty that they marry the unbeliever and now struggles terribly with the unbelieving spouse? Well, Neely, I, I would say simply this, that if a believer commits fornication, has sexual relations with an unbeliever, that they should not feel obligated to marry that unbeliever. That can be following one sin with another sin. And so they, they should not feel obligated. Now, maybe God would have them do that, especially if the unbeliever comes to the Lord, but they should not feel obligated. They sh we shouldn't feel that we have to answer one sin with a second sin. But your specific question seems to deal with that person has already married that person. Now, had, well, if they've already married them, then they need to prayerfully consider and seek God with how they can glorify God in the midst of their difficult situation as it is right then. So um, God does not want them to divorce their spouse. God wants them to remain in the marriage and to do the very best they can and to be God's shining light. It's regrettable that they followed one sin, the sin of fornication, with another sin, the sin of an unwise marriage and a marriage to an unbeliever. But uh, once they are in the marriage, they are obligated by God to make the very best of it that they can and for they themselves to not be the cause of that marriage breaking up if it should be dissolved. All right, one last question here from Janos. Janos, great to see you. Happy to be going to Germany next week, although I don't think I'm going to see you, but it's great to uh, hear from you. Hey, David, in Luke chapter 24, verse 35, it says, and they told about the things that happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Is there more to communion than just a symbol? Well, Giannis, that's a fascinating question. What you're talking about is the disciples on the road to Emmaus, how they walked with Jesus for an extended period. Jesus told them all about how the Messiah was to be revealed in the Old Testament. And then they didn't recognize that it was Jesus until they broke bread together. Now, here's the kind of question I have for you, Giannis. You got to admit, that Luke chapter 24 passage does not specifically say that when they broke bread on the road to Emmaus, that it was the Lord's table. We kind of take it that way. And you could say that there's an allusion to the Lord's table there, but it doesn't really say specifically that it was. I would say the most we can say is that there was an allusion. They broke bread because they wanted to share their food together. And it was in their sharing of the food that they recognized. Now, th there may have been some illusion, some thought. Maybe it was their association with their prior experience with Jesus. Maybe it was just, but it was in the breaking of bread that they realized this. I, I think we can say this, though, to answer your question. Is there more to communion than just a symbol? The answer to that is yes. 
there is some spiritual power. There is some spiritual revelation of Jesus Christ, I would even put it, in the Lord's table, in the taking of communion. If you want to use kind of the classical theological term, the Eucharist, even though I don't favor that term so much, but we understand what it means. It is a symbol, but it is not a bare symbol. Or if I could use this term, it is not a naked symbol. It is a symbol that is clothed with the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. So I, I don't regard it as being um, uh, as the Roman Catholics would regard communion, even as some Protestant denominations would regard communion, but it is wrong to regard it as only a symbol. It is a symbol with real spiritual power and something of the presence of Jesus in the midst of it. Now, I would say that the Luke chapter 24 passage that you speak of, it does not specifically teach that, but it illustrates that principle. And I think it illustrates it very well. Great to hear from Janos. Okay. That's all we're going to have time for, for questions. Now, will I be able to do a live question and answer with you next week? Here's my answer. I don't know. I will be in Germany teaching at a conference next uh, Thursday. I cannot say for sure whether I will not, I, whether or not I will be free to do the question and answer at 9 p.m. German time. Uh, it'll be 12 noon at that time. So will I be able to do a live Q&A or one? I don't know. We're just going to have to wait till next week and find out. But I'm very happy to be going to Germany. I appreciate your prayers. This is a wonderful conference, a wonderful gathering with dear friends and colleagues and associates in the work of the gospel. I love my European pastors and Christian workers and just people who love Jesus over there. I'm so grateful to be going to Calvary Chapel of Ziegen and sharing that time with them. I'll be preaching there this very next Sunday. And uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity I have to do that. I appreciate your prayers. As always, subscribe, click the notifications, and thank you for those who pray for the work of Enduring Word and support us. We are very, very blessed by your partnership in the work that we do with the Bible commentary, with the Bible resources. We're very grateful for it. So thanks. Thanks for joining us on this particular question and answer time. And I look forward to the next time when we can gather together. Thank you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.